As introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I've trained in epidemiology, uh, and I practice in Dallas, Texas. I hold degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern, the University of Michigan, and Southern Methodist University. Many of you have seen me on TV as a, a news commentator in the last few years. I've catapulted into public view, but uh, being in the public eye is not foreign to me. I mean, I testified in the Congressional Oversight Panel for the FDA in 2007 on a big product label expansion. I've lectured at the European Medicines Association, New York Academy of Sciences. I've given grand rounds in virtually every major medical center in the United States. And I am here to tell you, we are in a time of a great controversy. There's no doubt about it. Everyone can feel it. Something has happened in recent years. And the Great Controversy is also the name of a book by Ellen G. White, who was one of the founders of the Adventist Church in 1858. The controversy, as we sit here today, involves what I call a biopharmaceutical complex. And it's in uh, the title of a book. I'm going to leave our, our, the book with um, uh, our host today. Uh, but the book is available online, uh, as all books are, Preventing COVID-19, uh, The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. And in this book, uh, it, this is one of the few books in the COVID genre where it's not a medical book just telling my view of the world. It's actually a story. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and end. It's a gripping, uh, it has a gripping plot to it, but the plot's not fiction. It's real. It's a real story. What's happened, and I'll structure my comments the next few minutes into four parts. The first part is what's happened. What's happened is a biopharmaceutical complex has formed. This is a syndicate. It's a carefully organized syndicate. They've been meeting together in Davos, Switzerland for years on this. And everybody is in on it that you can see uh, uh, in places of wealth and authority in the world. This complex has figured out that in the setting of a medical emergency, in getting the worldwide impetus behind this, that doors of treasuries of governments all over the world will open and money will pour out into the complex. The complex will invest in itself. The complex will co-opt and collude with anybody they need to accomplish this goal, and they will reward those people with future jobs in the complex. The complex is at the top, we believe, the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Health Organization, UN, Gavi, UNITAID, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, formed by Gates and World Economic Forum, all the regulatory agencies, and I could just go all through them from the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, the TGA, the MHRA, uh, SAFRA and South Africa, they've got them all. And you know the complex is active by just watching the movement. Scott Gottlieb, who's one of my contemporaries, former FDA commissioner, he's in the complex. He's on the board of Pfizer now. His predecessor, Stephen Hahn, who was very active as I was active in the early parts of the pandemic, now works for the venture capital firm supporting and funding Moderna. 
Recently, a high-ranking official in the UK in the medical response just joined Moderna itself. Deborah Burks, remember her, the scarf lady who's in the... Uh, yes, she's now CEO of a biotech company, you know, from a, being a public health official. You can see what's happening. The complex is operative. Gates Foundation invested just a few million in BioNTech, and they got out billions, millions to billions. Those of you in the room who like money, you would like this. It is a money orgy right now. And there's been preparedness for this. Preparedness, that's an important word. The PREP Act, Congress and Health and Human Services write the PREP Act in 2005, and it says we will have waves of pandemics. It, they're coming from Zika to uh, uh, smallpox to SARS to you name it, it's coming, and we will be prepared. And when it's prepared, it'll be a national security operation. It'll be a national emergency, and we will have countermeasures. Countermeasures will be provided, and they will be immune from all forms of liability. That's what the PREP Act said. That was memorialized in 2005. Now, recently, just a few months ago, Health and Human Services Secretary Bashara just has written the 14th Amendment to the PREP Act, even further extending the immunity of countermeasures. Countermeasures are basically military operations. So the view was we were going to be attacked by an invader, not a foreign army, but a virus, and we were going to behave like we were attacked by an army. So anything we do militarily in response to this will be a countermeasure. And in the military, they don't, it's not about medical freedom. It's not about freedom of choice. It's not about keeping your business open or closed. It's the military, and one will respond. The very interesting thing about this is how the complex orchestrated this worldwide and simultaneously. That was, I think, very, very impressive. You see in the news recently an announcement about labs working on disease X. That Oh, there, there could be any disease, and we're going to be ready for it. Peter Daszak, who runs the EcoHealth Alliance, who is a rogue vaccinologist, the EcoHealth Alliance is a go-between between the U.S. funding agencies and, and biolabs uh, out in the world, uh, he published an op-ed in the New York Times in February of 2020. He says, it's here. Disease X is here. Announcing with great uh, enthusiasm that COVID is here, the pandemic is here, and we need to get ahead of this with vaccines and in the future vaccines. And in fact, when Gates Foundation and, and WEF formed CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation in 2017, they have a business plan. It says we will be a vaccine incubator, incubator with infinite funding and there will be pandemic after pandemic and there'll be only one response and that is mass vaccination. Only one response. Not even a single word about therapy. So what happened over time is the U.S., Department of Defense, its research unit, DARPA, the National Institutes of Health, and its basically military unit, BARDA, HHS, the Department of Defense, the National Security Administration, the CIA, and the FBI, they got in the business of biological threats, developing a biological threat and then developing a, a response. Monoclonal antibodies, therapeutics, vaccines. 
And this idea of threat response, threat response became very, very attractive. And there was basically unbridled investment and enthusiasm in this. Academic researchers got drawn in. The funding was so good. Listen, I've had NIH funding. I'm full professor of medicine. I know about the research funding game. And infectious disease doctors, instead of devising new strategies or new antibiotics, what have you, it became so desirable to get into the pandemic response business about a future disease. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, is the most published person on coronaviruses in the world. It's interesting, in the last three years, he's been the most silent person on the national stage. And he has been working for years on trying to make a chimeric virus. There's four coronaviruses that can affect us. It's like a mild cold that never invades the body. And he was able to, through US-funded research that was done in his labs and other labs, and at the very end, it was done in China, basically make the prototype SARS-CoV-2, that chimeric virus. And Barrick announced this discovery in two important publications in Nature and Medicine and Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015. And the title of these papers said, a SARS-like chimeric virus that's poised for human emergence. It's like, aha, we did it. We got the bat coronavirus. We took the best of the bat coronavirus onto a human coronavirus, and we got it to invade a human respiratory epithelial cell that was in the tract of mice. And in these papers, Barrick thanks the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He says, thank you very much. You do con we contracted the work for you. You did it. In the papers, it says, this is gain-of-function research, and since the Obama ban on gain-of-function research, it was grandfathered in since we started before the ban. We've just outsourced it to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's in these manuscripts as plain as day. No wonder Ralph Barrick is the most silent person in the world. This is 2015. It's announced. They've made it. The prototypical SARS-CoV-2 virus exists in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, fast forward in 2019, many different stories are, are, are circulating about, about what happened. Did it get out by accident? Was there actually a test of the virus and its communicability at, a, at basically a, a, a semi-Olympic competition there in 2019? But all experts and former CDC Director Redfield has testified on, the, on Capitol Hill that indeed the virus came out of the lab in Wuhan, China. And when he did... A three-year false narrative fell. Now, that false narrative was started in 2020. Christian Anderson, a vaccinologist, virologist from Scripps, Edwin Holmes from University of Sydney, Kurt Rambutt from uh, LSU, and Fauci, his boss, uh, Francis Collins, Jeremy Farrar at the Wellcome Trust, who's now the senior scientist at the WHO, and Peter Daszak at the EcoHealth Alliance, who ran the go-between, the runner operation between the U.S. and China, they all get on a conference call, and, and the emails are all there, and they said, what the F are we going to do about Barrick's papers? It's as plain as day that this was created in Wuhan, China. And Fauci and Collins orchestrate the grand deception. The deception was, let's write a series of papers in front to the world that it came out of nature, it came out of a fish market. This has all come out in the House Select Committee oversight. Uh, um, Brad Wenstrup, who's the chair, just published this on July 11th, uh, 2023. It's pretty new. It was a grand deception. 
So as we sit here today, our director of the National uh, Immunology and Allergy Branch who stepped down, our director of the NIH, multiple key international players, conspired to conceal a global health threat that took the lives of people. And instead of coming out and saying, listen, this was a U.S. project. We outsourced it in China. Something went bad. It got out. Here's the full dossier. This is everything we know about this. Here, doctors, save us. Instead of doing that, they concocted and they maintained a deceptive plan that ran through two presidential administrations. They were all in on it. They were all in on it through the entire academic community. And people would not flinch on this. The origin, if anyone said it came out of the lab in China, immediately one was accused of misinformation. Now, since the House Select Committee, there's been complete capitulation on the National Security Administration website. Yeah, it came out of the lab. It, now, FBI website, CIA, National Institutes of Health, Department of Energy. And so Rand Paul basically said, wait a minute, all these agencies were in on it? He said, listen, let's declassify the documents. So the, the order for declassifying all the U.S. documents on the origins of SARS-CoV-2 goes to Avril Haines. Who is Avril Haines? She is the director of national intelligence. Do you know what she did in 2019? She was in event 201. That was one of the pandemic preparedness planning committee meetings that was basically filmed. And her section, she was paired up with George Gao, who was the head of the Chinese CDC, and they were in the um, tabletop exercise of how do we deal with the public health response when people find that it came out of a lab in China. There were 36 pandemic preparedness planning events since 2012. 36, 25 had written documents, six are filmed like Event 201. Basically, Event 201, which happened in the fall, was an operational meeting. They already knew it was out of the lab. That's the reason why the Chinese raced over there to be there. Avril Haines, to this day, will not declassify the documents. She's refusing to classify the documents. That's, what, that's the type of malfeasance that we have right now. We are sitting on the biggest misadventure in biological research and government operations worldwide of all time. That's what's happened. My role as a doctor when this came out is I was responding, I was making observations, I was collaborating as best and rapidly as I could. I, I came up with the first published protocol on how to treat the illness. We quickly demonstrated it worked. We published a series of papers. By December of 2020, we had clear and convincing evidence that early treatment was working. And instead of being celebrated, you know the story. I was crushed. No, you can't say a word about early treatment. You can't even talk about any of the components of early treatment. In fact, doctors can't prescribe early treatment and pharmacists can't dispense the medicines. Who was suppressing early treatment? The CDC, NIH, and FDA, HHS, every single medical society, and every single major health system in complete lockstep. Some places it was more severe. If a doctor even thought about it and mentioned it, the doctor would be decertified. Canada's got 1,000 doctors on the sidelines. Australia, about the same amount. France, 2,000. New Zealand, 1,000. United States, we have a few. But we have a lot of them, like Dr. Carey and myself, that have basically had our professional careers disassembled. Those who were suppressing early treatment were in this government narrative. And the government narrative, I am convinced, and I really outlined it in the book, was intentional. 
It was intentional to create fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death. Yes, governments intentionally wanted to harm their citizens all over the world all at once. Now that is a great controversy. How can all the minds think the same all at once? I did some things on Clubhouse, and I was astounded. I had doctors in the Netherlands tell me that essentially they were you know, committing euthanasia to seniors in the Netherlands. Instead of treating COVID, they were giving them lethal doses of morphine. The same thing was happening in, you know, in, in the, in the uh, jungles of Africa and South America. People started to behave incredibly bizarrely all over the world. It wasn't a U.S. phenomenon. There was a small number of people who seemed to have eyes to see and ears to hear, and there were just a mass that appeared to have scales over their eyes. They just were clouded. They could not possibly register that we should be treating the illness. I testified in the Texas Senate. Um, that's what ultimately I was on Tucker Carlson the, the, the next month. I, I looked at HHS and I just blew them out of the water. I said, I've sat through eight hours of testimony. People are talking about masks and lockdowns and vaccines. Nobody's talking about the sick person right in front of us. What are you doing with the sick person right in front of us? And everyone's jaw dropped. This is about taking care of sick people. That's what this is. All the pandemic response was focused on well people. Everything was applied to a well person, not a sick person. There was nothing for the sick person. So there was the suppression of early treatment. And those suppressing early treatment were the same entities that were ready to, and in, in fact, completely pushed vaccines. And these weren't any vaccines. The vaccines were genetic. They were brand new. They were rushed to development. Although messenger RNA technology is old technology, it just has not worked out. It was a technology designed to replace missing proteins not produce foreign proteins in our body to try to raise an immune response. That was a disastrous idea. And so when the vaccines came out, at first it was elective. But we, we saw bizarre things happening. In the first week of the vaccine program, 3,000 pregnant women took shots. Since when do we ever have a pregnant woman take a brand new medicine, let alone a genetic injection? And then it went on from there. You know the story, the mandates and all of that. It just went and went, and, and our liberties were stripped. And you, you remember all these statements, right? Look at um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, F your freedom, right? Oh, thanks, Arnold. Really? And it just swept across the nighttime TV. And the pejoratives, the vaccinated or the unvaccinated. But the, 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 the floor fell out of the vaccine campaign early. It was found out they'd only last less than six months. So you weren't really vaccinated if you went more than six months. People have really dropped off. I, I, I recently held a Twitter poll for the lack of any other information. And I wanted to know who's actually in the vaccine narrative. That is, if someone's truly in the vaccine narrative, they would have taken seven shots by now. Seven. I said, does anybody know anybody who took seven shots, let alone a public figure? I, talking to people, I couldn't come up with one. I recently went on the show with Laura Trump. She's the daughter-in-law of uh, former President Trump. I said, do you know anybody? Like your father-in-law? And um, nobody. So anyhow, on Twitter, it was around 9%. People said, yeah, I know somebody's taken. But most of them were Canadians or people outside the United States. There have been people who have taken. The vast majority dropped off quickly. So the vast majority of people took shots, took them early. They were scared. They weren't sure. They thought they were vulnerable. Okay. But people quickly figured this out. The CDC VAERS system of adverse events that have come in on the vaccines show that, you know, once we get to 
five, six, seven shots, it's way less than 1% of the reports coming in there. So almost all the action is early. The vaccines didn't work. They didn't stop anybody from getting COVID. They didn't stop transmission. Our CDC director came out and said that early, and they didn't reduce the severity of disease. They're not going to prevent a recurrence. Right now, there's a fear media campaign right now saying everyone should take more shots because more COVID is coming. They failed on all four counts. They failed on all four counts. And I think America would have accepted an apology. America would have been very forgiving. The world would have been okay with that if they were safe. But it turns out the vaccines, as many of you know, aren't safe. As we sit here today, we have 3,400 peer-reviewed papers describing fatal and non-fatal vaccine injury syndromes in the National Library of Medicine. It is not controversial. It's not a theory. It is real. These vaccines cause very real side effects, and they're in four major categories. One is cardiovascular and heart inflammation, myocarditis, cardiac arrest. Number two is neurologic, all forms of stroke, Guillain-Barre syndrome, neuropathy. Number three, blood clotting. Blood clotting like we've never seen in medicine before. Blood clots that don't respond to typical blood thinners that are just a disaster. And number four, immune system abnormalities. I'm not ready to call cancer right now, although people are very worried about cancer. I can't imagine that a single protein and the genetic code for it would, in addition to those four things, cause a fifth major category disease being cancer. I just can't imagine. That makes staphylococcal toxin look like, look like a, you know, a cupcake. I mean, it's just, it's, it, is, it is inconceivable how a protein could be that deleterious to the body. What we've learned is the protein that, that is produced from the messenger RNA vaccines is not broken down by human enzymes. It's not. It gets stuck in the body potentially forever. This is a giant problem. No wonder we have problems two years later. There's a recent paper by Li and colleagues from China that's demonstrated that two years after taking shots in 2021, there's micro blood clots circulating through the retinal arteries and retinal veins. Not in everyone, but in a percentage, about 2% or so. People have asked the question, why are some people take these shots and they're perfectly fine and other people have literally died in the vaccine center? And what, of the deaths that the CDC knows about, 1,100 die in the center or an hour or two afterwards. It's that acute. I interviewed on my show, I interviewed a paramedic who's been going out to the vaccine centers and doing CPR. He's been telling me about it. So it's very real. The reason is, in a paper by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark, where they had all the adverse events, they had all the lot numbers and batches, the manufacturing batches, a th just about a third of the shots in, in this low-risk batch have zero side effects, not even a sore arm, nothing, zero, zilch. And they don't have anything later on. If you're in that group, if you've taken the shots and you didn't feel it, you're good. There's another group, about two-thirds, where they have some modest side effects, and that's it. And then there's this third batch. That's where all the action is. It's 4.2% of the doses, and it's potentially lethal. That's where all the blood clots are, the heart damage. is 4.2% of doses. It matches almost exactly with the Lee data. It matches very similar with the CDC V-safe data, which say 7.7% of Americans get so sick with the shots they have to go to their urgent care or, um, or the hospital afterwards. So it's a small number of people who are really, really taking risk and others that are basically 
getting away scot-free. How can that happen? Because under emergency use authorization, of which Bashara just extended for these all the way till uh, January 1 of 2024, um, December 31st of 2024, there are no inspections. Despite having plenty of time and resources for infections, the vaccines have never been inspected for quality, purity, or contaminants. Japanese have returned millions of doses because of, of visible contaminants in the vials. So all of American biotechnology and ingenuity, all the best that we have, turns out Pfizer, Moderna, and the companies they don't even make their own products. They are subcontracted to defense, biodefense contractors. That's who make them. But no inspections. And the FDA is staunchly defending this. The FDA staunchly defends complete opacity on safety. They haven't conducted a safety review. And Pfizer's 90-day safety dossier finally under court order was, was opened up to America. There was 1,223 deaths within 90 days. This, this should, Pfizer should have been taken off the market January 2021. Moderna never should have come out. The FDA never stopped it. Pfizer never stopped it. The FDA wanted to block that to America for 55 years. The FDA and Robert Califf, who's the head, who's a personal friend of mine, he's a cardiologist from Duke, they are in on this great controversy. My final sets of comments have to do not with COVID at all. I know you're, you're all here to, to mention this, but I, I'm bringing this up because it's an example of how the house of medicine can quickly become co-opted, corrupt, misguided, misdirected, and do harm. And the answer here or the topic of concern is the sudden transgender crisis. The sudden transgender crisis. The sudden human desire to change from one gender to another that seemed to come upon us overnight. Well, what's going on here? Turns out this transgender crisis has been brewing for about 15 years over in Europe. In fact, it's kind of burning out in Europe right now. But it's been going on for a while. But there's been a rise of... LGBT, an interest in transgender and people truly trying to change their genders and live out that fantasy, and then a rise of another illness, that they're, the two parallel each other. I'm an epidemiologist. I train at University of Michigan on this, and I study these patterns. The other illness that is in lockstep with transgenderism is autism, an autism spectrum disorder. The two are mirror-imposed. Autism, when I was born, was 1 in 10,000. Now it's 1 in 36. Some schools actually have autism tracks in the schools for kids. It's so common now. A track. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a curriculum track. It's that common. The pediatric and psychiatric community throws their hands up and say, well, we don't know what's causing it. It's a neuropsychiatric syndrome. There are roughly 800 papers, 200 of which focus on the immune system, that are arriving that autism in some way is related to the acceleration of hypervaccination in children, giving rounds and rounds of vaccines. When I was a kid, there were five shots. Now there are a total of, I think a child under two receives 29 shots. Through age 18 with COVID, we're at 108 shots. There's one NGO, by the way, out there that's part of this complex. They're aspiring for human beings to actually take 500 shots. 500 shots. Someone said, Dr. McCullough, you're an anti-vaxxer. I said, my gosh, I, I asked my mom for my vaccine card. I counted everything up. I grew up, my mom was told to take me in for a vaccine. I took vaccines. This body you're looking at, I took 69 shots. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a pincushion for crying out loud. 
what I've become is I've become vaccine risk aware that vaccines in the 1986 Vaccine Injury Compensation Act in the legislation says that vaccines have unavoidable harm. And for that reason, the manufacturers must be held free of liability. Unavoidable harm. So what we know is that autism is driving the transgender epidemic. A vast number of people who are in the LGBT community are ostracized. They don't feel like they fit in, and they are preyed upon in this indoctrination towards transgender medicine. Transgender medicine has dozens and dozens and dozens of papers out there. The hormones in the surgery worsen the psychiatric burden of disease, increase mortality from all causes, and are loaded with complications. It's so bad that states are banning it. Since when do states have to ban something that major medical centers and doctors do? There's no doctor who should do this. There's no nurse that should participate in this. There's no hospital that should do this. No ethical person would do this. The, the, the diagnosis is gender dysphoria. That means one's not happy with their gender. The cure for gender dysphoria is to go through normal puberty. That's where a male and a female brain uh, form. Dr. Cariotis is, is a psychiatrist. He can answer a lot of questions on this. The, the cure is not to do disfiguring surgeries and prescribe hormones that are unnatural and try to force their way through this. Yet the transgender crisis is a crisis upon us. And the house of medicine is on fire right now. People have asked me, Dr. McCullough, how can cardiologists strongly advise or push the vaccines that cause heart damage on heart patients? I, I, I said, I don't know. I really don't know. How can people be forced to, in the heart, I just, on the way here, I flew next to one of our doctors at my hospital in, in Dallas, who's on the transplant service. And he was a surgeon. He was shaking his head. He goes, they are forcing the vaccines on the transplant patients, and they're dying before they ever get to transplant. How can that get in the minds of people? How can doctors possibly think? Do you know the Endocrine Society, the American College of Pediatrics, and OB-GYN Societies all strongly support transgender medicine? The Autism Advocacy Network strongly uh, supports uh, 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 transgender medicine. Every state that's banned it immediately has had those bans stayed by the Autism Advocacy Network and other interest groups through the ACLU. Texas Attorney General reached out to me just last week and said, Dr. McCullough, can you please issue a statement? We can't find a doctor who will step up and tell us that transgender medicine is bad medicine. Not a single doctor in the entire state. It's astounding. We're in a time of a great controversy. There's no doubt about it. The House of Medicine's on, on fire. When doctors got on the wrong side of smoking, do you know doctors used to advertise cigarettes? They used to smoke in the operating room. Do you know that? It took 40 years from the time we knew smoking was bad for the human body and caused cancer to the, to the tobacco side. And doctors say, oh, yeah, it's bad. 40 years. Ignaz Semmelweis in Vienna in 1500 proposed that we wash our hands. And he had data to reduce infections in pregnant women. 15 years of writing books and, and, and giving seminars like this, what have you, and he died in an insane asylum. They said, this guy's nuts. We should never have to wash our hands. Okay. The opioid pandemic's been going on for two decades now. The house of medicine isn't what you think it is. And the way you take charge is you take charge using your common sense, doing what you're doing now. Anything that violates your common sense, anything that violates your principal moorings in life, challenge it. Someone tells you to do something tomorrow that just doesn't make sense, 
don't go along with it. You really have to stand up for your civil liberties. And I'm so glad to be here. I'm going to turn it over uh, to the rest of the program, and I'd be happy to take questions afterwards. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.